Welcome to Piecing It All Together. Hey, I'm Randy Woodley. I'm Bo Sanders. And we are piecing it all together. With you, this is episode 21. Randy, you just got back from a cross-country tour. Yeah, cross-country and transcontinental. I was actually in Canada, too. Oh, my goodness. Uh, but we talk about that some other time. All right. Maybe we talk about Indiana now? Yeah. So the, the piece that we have to listen to today is a lecture that you gave in Elkhart, Indiana, to a Mennonite school there. Yeah, I don't know if we want to call it a lecture. That might put some people to sleep. But, uh, let's say a, an exciting talk. <laughs> okay, an exciting talk. And it is actually, you're right, it's not exactly a lecture. You have a really uh, lively interaction between stories and sort of conceptual points. And the stories actually punctuate uh, the concepts that you're introducing, or they introduce a different way of thinking. And so, actually, in an upcoming episode, you and I are going to be talking about the power of parables. And in this episode, you really model that well. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So, uh, I didn't know I really was modeling anything well at this point in my life, but uh, it's good to hear. Um, yeah, I'm just really thankful for the uh, Mennonites and uh, for inviting me out and, and actually for holding this conference, Rooted and Grounded, which they're concerned about the, the earth and uh, what's happening, and we all need to be concerned about that. I know we're going to do uh, a future podcast about the new climate report and some yeah. concerns about that. Yeah, so we have that uh, future episode coming up. Listen, if you like uh, what you're hearing, would you please share it with your friends? Uh, we love to get your feedback, so go ahead and like our Facebook page, and you can comment there. You can comment in the show notes. But it also, the two things we could use are we could use some more reviews on iTunes because it helps us find a broader audience. And if you would support us on Patreon, you can find that link in the show notes at the $1 level or the $10 level or the $20 level. We have another Zoom coming up soon if you want to join in the conversation and let your voice be heard. So enjoy this presentation. Let us know your feedback and we will talk to you soon. Uh, we found each other. Um, about the same time that, that God began to sort of raise up some, uh, I won't say young, but um, young thinking whippersnappers um, who were Native American who said, hey, we can follow Jesus and be Native. We don't have to become white. We don't have to get rid of our, our stuff, you know, any more than white folks have to get rid of their stuff. And so we began this theological journey um, to do something about that. And so um, <clears throat> my, my mantra during all of those years, and sometimes even today, uh, as I look at this brick wall, it reminds me of my mantra. And my mantra is a quote from Peter Berger, Pyramids of Sacrifice. And it is, sometimes one has to beat their head against a brick wall repeatedly, knowing that the wall will not move and the forehead will bleed just because it's the right thing to do. So my, my hope is today that I don't leave with a bleeding forehead. I thank you for being here. I thank you, uh, the, you know, the, the Mennonites have actually in the last five, six years, uh, both the Canadian Mennonites and in the U.S. have sort of, you know, have been gracious to me, offering, you know, hey, would you write this? Would you write that? You know, could you come speak over here? And so it's been uh, a delight getting to know some of you um, and, uh, uh, and your tribe. So, um, and I think I can, as much as anywhere, call the Mennonites a tribe. So, yeah. So, um, but I, I do want to, to sort of uh, talk uh, uh, about the way that we see things. 
I think we, we have a problem. And uh, it, it reminds me of this uh, uh, story I heard about, about this Texas rancher who heard about, uh, he was a horse trader, horse dealer, and, and he heard about the, the horses up in Wyoming. And he thought, oh, these are, I've heard these are the best, you know, horse flesh that money can buy. And, and I'm going to go up there and I'm going to find the best one. But, you know, the guy who owned these horses was an old Indian man. And so he got to his house and he knocked on the screen door. You know, it was half fallen off. And the old Indian guy comes out there and, and uh, the, uh, the Texas rancher says, Hey, I hear you have some pretty good horses. And so the old Indian guy says, Yeah. He says, In fact, there's, I got seven of my best horses up in the corral right over here. And so they start walking out and he said, you, you know, any of those six right there, those are good horses. But this one over here don't look so good. Immediately, that Texas rancher, he thought, what's this Indian guy trying to pull? He's probably saving his best horse for himself. So he goes over and he looks at that horse and he's on his way. And the Indian guy says, that horse don't look so good. And uh, he says, well, you know, he looks pretty good to me. And so he starts looking him over. And finally, he says, you know what? How much do you want for him? Well, I couldn't sell you him. He don't look so good. No, 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 no. He said, I'll give you whatever you want. And so they settled on a price. Texas rancher loaded that horse up. Took him back down to Texas, called his friends on the way and said, hey, we're going to have a big barbecue. So get everybody there, you know, and, uh, and I'm going to unload one of the nicest horses I've ever seen. So he starts unloading that horse and all his friends are watching. And all of a sudden, that horse starts stumbling all over the place. And uh, everybody starts laughing at him. He's so mad. He turns that horse around. He loads him back up and he travels all the way back to Wyoming. He knocks on the door of that old Indian guy. And he says, hey, you sold me a blind horse. And the Indian guy says, I told you three times. He don't look so good. <laughs> Let's see how we look today. <clears throat> um, I just want to mention the broadcast because... Uh, if you don't want any more of this, that's okay. But if you do, you can find us on Stitcher and uh, iTunes, piecing it all together. And that's P-E-A-C-I-N-G. So, um, so uh, I want to tell you another story, a traditional story. I was in Alaska for several years on Kodiak Island. And there's a story that goes around there about, um, uh, about a, a little Aleut boy who lived with his grandmother. And it was a pretty rough winter. And so... They kept, uh, you know, having to eat the same thing over and over again. It was dried seal and seal oil. Dried seal and seal oil. Every single day. That's all they had left. And so the boy started complaining. And he said, I want something more, Grandma. And he said, let me go out hunting. And Grandma first said, no, 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 you can't go out hunting. And finally he convinced her to go hunting. And so, but she said, you know... If you're going to go out, you should get enough for everyone. So I want you to, whatever it is that you get, come back. If it's small, we can share it. If it's larger, we'll share it with the whole village. But whatever you do, the first thing you get, bring it back. So he, the boy's excited. You know, he's going to be a great hunter. And he goes out, and the first thing he sees is a little needlefish, you know, swimming around. And he scoops it up, and he thought, well... Certainly grandma didn't mean this, you know, so he says, this is nothing. This is not even enough for me. And so he just scarfs it down. Then he goes on and he sees a salmon. 
And he says, well, that salmon will be pretty good eating, but I don't think there's enough here for Grandma, and certainly not enough for the village, so I'm going to go ahead and, and eat that salmon. And then he went on down, and the next thing you know, you know, he saw a seal. And he said, I've had enough of seal. So he goes and he finds a walrus. Now, by this time, he's way far away from where he lived, his village. And he thinks, you know, by the time I pack that thing and eat it on my several days journey on the way back, there won't be anything left for, for a little, maybe a little for my grandma, but not the village. So, so I need to just keep moving. And so in each time, he encountered something larger. And he finally got to the point where he was way far up north, and he found a whale, a beached whale. And he cut that whale up, and he started eating it, and he just set up camp, and he ate, and he ate, and he ate, until he got to the point where he was so large that you didn't even recognize him. And just to satisfy his thirst, he had to drink half of the river. And so he became this big, fat monster. And he sloshed when he walked. And all of a sudden he realized to himself what he'd become. And he cried and he said, you know, if I'd have just listened to my grandma, then I'd have, you know, I wouldn't be in this mess. And he didn't know what to do. Because it seemed an impossible journey when he was that fat to get back home. And so he travels, he begins to travel, and he says, I, I've got to try and get back to Grandma's, at least see Grandma. You know, maybe she'll know what to do. And so he sloshes his way back home, this big monster that was not recognizable as a young boy anymore. And he finally got to his house, and he was so sad and so happy at the same time that he was outside crying, and his grandma came out and said, Grandson, is that you? He said, it's me, Grandma. Look what I've become. I didn't listen to you. Grandma said, I'll fix this. So Grandma went back inside. And here's how I know that this old, old story uh, was influenced a little by the missionaries. And she got a bone needle. And she said, Grandson, I want you to climb on top of the house and come through the chimney. And so he climbed his best on the house and he started coming through the chimney. And as he came through the chimney, she put that needle out there and he came through the eye of that needle. Sound familiar? And when he did, and this is how I know that it's actually a traditional native story. You ready? All that food came out of his mouth. (laughs) The walrus and the whale and the salmon and everything else he could caught. And you know what happened? the village came around and they all had a feast. That is the meta-narrative of today's talk. And like I used to say when I pastored, if you understand the children's story, then you can go home. (laughs) So allow me to talk to you a few minutes and then... If we don't have enough time afterwards, I'm told that um, we will have time after the next session, and I'm happy to respond to anything. Um, It's not our values to talk and not allow anyone else to talk. So I would feel very uh, cheated and bad if that happened. So please 
know that uh, that's the intention here is to give you a chance to comment and talk as well. Um, I love this quote by James Baldwin. American history is longer, larger, more various, more beautiful, and more terrible than anything anyone has ever said about it. I could tell you terrible stories, but I won't do that today. Another wise historian said, Winston Churchill, history will be kind to me because I intend to write it. (laughs) And it was, because he did. So the winners always write history, right? And so now what's happening with this, this phenomenon called the browning of America, people of color and women and other folks are allowed to start coming to the table and sharing their stories. And all of a sudden, that might makes right doesn't seem so right anymore. One of my favorite authors is a, a, man, <laughs> a man named John Mohawk. And uh, he was an a, a elder, a wise elder for many years. I've followed him since I was a teenager. Um, but uh, he taught at SUNY uh, Buffalo in New York. He said, for the most part, contemporary historians have proceeded from the presumption that modern people are different from and superior to those who have come before, especially those designated as primitives. Distortions and incomplete, even dishonest renderings of the past are found in many modern accounts of ancient peoples and contemporary quote-unquote primitive peoples. These accounts serve to reinforce the sense of difference and to distance moderns from unflattering legacies of the past. You know, I think about this, and what, am, what are we going to do? One of the things that often people come up to me, uh, especially white folks, and they will say, well, I don't have a culture. And I'm like, yeah, you're, you're the fish swimming in water. You don't realize you're in water until somebody takes you out of it, right? So, so we all have culture. And here's the funny thing, and this is one of the points I want to bring home today. We are all indigenous from somewhere. Wherever your people come from, and, and, you know, you can get a pretty good idea by doing the DNA stuff nowadays, even if you don't know. Uh, they were people of the land at one time. They are people who were much like uh, the indigenous people of this continent in that they understood the land. But you know what happened during the age of Christian empire was that they said, well, everything everybody else believed was no good, and we're going to wipe all that out. A few people, a few pockets like the Irish and the Catholics hung on to their spirituality just, you know, long enough to sort of make it to the point where they could survive. But by and large, everyone was told their stuff was no good, which really bucks against my understanding of theology and who Jesus is, that he's always been available to all peoples. And so we come through sort of a, this is a weird kind of chart, but I just throw it up because I haven't bothered in a about 10 years to update it, but, um, but basically, you know, we get, here's sort of the Christian uh, look at uh, how we come to understand who God is, and this is sort of the indigenous way, um, but there's similarities to this all over the world. It doesn't have to be North America, um, and uh, this one uh, produces uh, this, and this one produces a, a, a ethic of unity and harmony, and I'll talk more about that. Uh, Kidwell Nolan Tinker said uh, in their book about Native American theology, 
Um, Why should Indian people be coerced to give up God's unique self-disclosure to us? Why ought Indian people learn to identify after the fact with God's self-disclosure to some other people in a different place and time in mythic tradition then that, uh, that, that is strange and alienating. Our traditions are ancient and precious and are to be revered and lived. And, you know, I would say that about probably every people. My friend Robert Francis, uh, who's a Cherokee in Missouri, uh, he said, colonization begins with religion, specifically with theology that serves to raise the colonizers above those to be colonized. Such theologies of conquest are most usually based on exclusive truth claims and exclusive notions of salvation. The idea that every nation since the dawn of creation has been itching to overthrow its neighbors and set up dominion as a colonizing empire is proved false through the archaeological record. You can reference DeMaio if you're interested in a good article on that. However, when a people develop the idea that they have exclusive possession of communication from God and exclusive control of the means of salvation, all the peoples of the earth stand in peril. So an alternative to colonial religion, I will say, requires a different foundation or a different base DNA. Because you only get the DNA that comes from your parents. There's not three. We're not like cats, you know. You only get the DNA from your parents. And so unless you introduce a new parent, you'll get the same thing you started with. And that's what's often happened in our programs in the church. Indigenous theology offers new theological possibilities from different worldview lens, truly a different road leading to the same place. And I just want to take you down. uh, This is definitely not going to be my Native American history class, but I just want to mention a few things very quickly. Um, I'm not, uh, in case some of you farmers are wondering, I'm not dumping the whole load today. I'm just uh, dumping a few bales, okay? So in 28,000 B.C., Santa Rosa Island, is, uh, uh, they found and dated uh, human hearts. Um, everything in between uh, that dates and now they're finding everywhere. We have uh, actually in um, uh, Oregon, southern Oregon, in a cave, we have human, I'll say it close, feces that... Uh, <laughs> Is dated at 18,000 years. So, um, uh, and, and in 3500 BC, the Sumerians settle in Babylon. That's pre-Israel. 3372, the Mayan calendars is based on that date, which is more accurate than the Gregorian calendar. Um, in 1200 BC, the Olmec civilization is the pre-Aztec uh, civilization. Um, the founding of Rome, way down here, 753 BC. Um, which is, by the way, Western civilization always looks to Greece and Rome for you know, their validation of being a great civilization. Um, in 1 AD, the Hokum build sites near Salt River. They also built, around that same time, um, ball courts with rubber balls, in case you're interested. 1,300 native populations are estimated at over 65 million in the continent, known as North America. I don't know about you, but I was told that there were only 1 to 2 million here. So we learn about all these ancient civilizations, uh, but what we don't learn about is the civilizations that exist, existed in Native America. Um, 
unparalleled techniques in microagriculture and macro management. I won't go through all of these. Um, you can read them there. Sustainable architecture, the humanities, psychology, philosophy, religion, theology, rhetoric, sciences, math, medicines, brain surgery, dentistry, um, urban planning, uh, education systems, intercontinental economic trade, complex peacemaking strategies, and that's one I wish we would pick up again soon. We had these ancient civilizations that were probably in many ways much more healthier than Europe, um, the, much more tolerant of diversity, um, not perfect, but um, the remnants of which have been picked up, over 500 medicines and herbal remedies now used in modern medicine. 60% of the world's foods originated in the Americas. We had great mound-building cultures. You have them here in Indiana and Ohio and Michigan. And that whole map there is mound-building culture. If anyone's ever been to Cahokia in St. Louis, um, uh, it's wonderful they preserve that. What they don't tell you is that there were hundreds, perhaps thousands, of Cahokias in these areas. The Southwest Native American cultures, if you've ever been to any of the sites there, like Mesa Verde and Old Arabi and, you know, uh, supposed to be the oldest continuously inhabited uh, uh, village still in the United States. Chaco Canyon, it's a wonderful thing. I won't spend time telling you, but Chaco Canyon was uh, 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 so well-designed and had so many roads going out for hundreds and hundreds of miles and subsidiary roads and lit at nighttime that that ancient aliens believes that uh, it couldn't have been Native Americans. You know, if you ever watch that show, Ancient Aliens, you know, they're the ones described that it couldn't have been Native people who did this, you know. So, um, uh, again, the Hokum culture, 500 uh, miles of canals, irrigated 110,000 acres, fed up to 80,000 people in the Phoenix, Arizona area, if you can imagine. And then uh, where I live, the Pacific Northwest, was probably best known as sort of the bread basket. It was so abundant um, that uh, it could have fed uh, in just on the coastal regions, 100 miles on the coast, between 20 and 60 million people. A 6,000-year-old record shows that up into the past two centuries, the indigenous people of the Pacific Northwest never suffered from drought conditions. They were societies of abundance, not need. So I learned all these things because I had to teach myself all these things, basically, because they're not taught in most of our schools or colleges. or uh, and, and I get grad students, and they always say the same thing about this time. They say, why wasn't I taught any of this stuff? And my answer is always the same. You weren't supposed to know this. You weren't supposed to know this. So I started asking, well, what about theology and worldview? And I knew uh, we were on something called the Pilgrimage for Reconciliation back in 2,000-something, my wife always corrects me, so uh, like one or two or something like that. And uh, uh, with the uh, uh, InterVarsity Multi-Faith Ministry, Multi-Ethnic Ministry team, uh, we were leading a section of that on the Cherokee Trail of Tears, and we were looking at where Shalom was broken, and we read Walter Brueggemann's book, Shalom, or Peace, it's called. And, um, and then I kept saying, well, we've got to, that's when I understood the big picture of Shalom. That's when I understood the safety net for the, the disenfranchised. That's when I understood who the widows and the orphans and the immigrants really were. All of that, and the lights came on, and uh, that's when I understood the, how the abundance that the earth is supposed to produce. And, and I said, we have a construct like that, our Cherokee people. And so I went back, and I began to ask, tell me about this. Oh, it's called Elohe. 
And then I asked some other friends who were Navajo, and they said, yeah, we, we have that. It's called Hojon, beauty way, walk in harmony. And so I began to wonder, well, I wonder how many of our tribes had this. And so uh, that's when I ended up doing my doctoral dissertation on that, my Ph.D. dissertation. And this is, it was called The Harmony Way, Integrating Indigenous Values with Native North American Theology and Mission. I looked at three things, a biblical theological construct of shalom, which is largely based on Brueggemann, but I read all the other authors as well. A contextually based anthropologically informed missiology, an indigenous construction of decolonization and indigenization for mission and theology. Um, I took all this stuff, I took it from various fields and looked at all the native value studies that have been done. The anthropological studies in particular were important. Um, I uh, interviewed eight uh, elders um, who were language speakers, spiritual leaders, um, in in extensive interviews for hours and hours. Um, 100 Native Americans were surveyed from every region of the United States. Um, And then, then I responded to that. I linked the elder and survey responses with the literature regarding Native American value studies and uh, experiences and uh, was able to establish something that I just called the Harmony Way because it encompassed everything. And uh, uh, I was able to find um, 10 core values that existed within that framework among 45 Native American tribes in every region of the United States and Canada and uh, integrated all that. And, uh, and then I came up with these 10 values that are widely held. We say widely held if we're academics. We can't say universally held, but they are widely held. Uh, at least 45 tribes from every region of the United States and Canada. And uh, this is what they are. And I won't go into detail, but I will just name them quickly. Tangible spirituality. In other words, it's something physical. It's there. Um, it's, uh, you know, symbols and harmonies and ceremonies, or sim- symbols and ceremonies, songs, and things that are tangible. Two, life is governed by harmony. In other words, it's all about keeping balance and harmony in our life and with the earth, etc. Community is essential, um, including the fact that women are sacred, which is something we need to remember uh, more today. Um, humor is sacred and necessary. And this is one that's really, really important when I'm talking to white folks. Because one of the things, I guess I can say this. What do you think, honey? Should I say it? Valerie was was holding back last night. But I'm going to go ahead because I tend to be on the edge so I don't take up so much room. So uh, one of the things that Native people say about white people when white people aren't around why do they take everything so serious? Oh, boy. Why are they so serious about themselves? Humor is a part of the balance of life, both impromptu and, and it's also designed in ceremony. Um, number five, cooperative communality. Consensus gives dignity to hear everyone's voice. And this is what I was talking about when I told you I need to be able to hear from you as well. Um, orality. And we talked, we've talked about story uh, in a number of places, including last night when we were here. Um, when you hear story, you find yourself in it. When you hear propositional truth, you find everybody else in it. <laughs> Present and past time orientation. This was an important one, but, but it would take a little while to explain. But basically, 
what they what they said was that the uh, that um, uh, European Americans uh, generally have a present and future orientation, whereas Indigenous people have a present and past orientation. So, in other words, to go forward, we have to look at what's been done in the past. They have a whole model of a consensus building that's called appreciative inquiry that's sort of based on that, right, if you've yeah. done that. Yeah. So um, open work ethic, which is the one I love the best, but if, if you have a farm, you know there's no such thing as, like, you know, getting the work done. But uh, the, uh, the open work ethic is, like, we work until there's nothing left to do, and then we don't do anything but have a good time. <laughs> wow. Okay. Hospitality and generosity, which I think is the hallmark of our traditional Native people. Um, they are uh, extremely hospitable and extremely generous. Um, and then finally, a natural connectedness to all creation, um, which is really what we're focusing in on here. Creation is seen as an integrated whole in which we are all related, a model for harmony, reciprocity. We are keepers of the earth, some I've heard the word steward a number of times since I've been here. I had a master student who uh, who actually took that word on, and uh, the word that he came up with is the word I like now better, that, that he says is a more biblical understanding of that construct, and that word is co-sustainer, that we are co-sustainers with God. So... <clears throat> I know that the, the Mennonites have had quite a tussle over the doctrine of discovery in the last few years. Um, I'd be happy to inform that at some point, but I can't do it all today. But the doctrine of discovery basically is the religious and legal sanction to take America over, to take Africa over, to take over basically anywhere where people didn't uh, uh, profess Christianity. And I always, you know... You guys probably won't mind this because I have a feeling that Mennonites don't care much for Puritans. So, um, but, but I always say that the, the first dilemma in America with the Puritans was that you know, they encountered a people who were, followed Jesus closer than they did, um, yet never knew his name. That was a dilemma. So what do you do about that? Well, you create a theology of you know, the Canaanites, right? Joshua and the Canaanites. Um, and then we developed as, as land began to, uh, people began to seek because, you know, the Europeans, if you read uh, um, Gerald Mann's book, 1493, you know that what happened in Europe was that it was completely despoiled. That the, the refuge in the streets caused disease and, and uh, was really unhealthy. That the, the, the bays and the creeks and the rivers were almost all fished out. That the trees, especially oak trees, the oak forest, were almost all completely gone because of building castles and building churches and building fortresses. And so the first products that shipped from the shores of this continent uh, was not tobacco or anything like that. Or, uh, it was actually, well, it was first, I think, uh, I don't know what they shipped actually in the Caribbean, but, but when they came to places like Virginia, the first thing they sent back were oak trees, our virgin oaks. Manifest destiny. Uh, our residential boarding schools, which I, I believe most of you are familiar with here, and the things that went through that. And we've known so many elders, including my father-in-law was a, a survivor of boarding schools. And their stories are very much the same. Not everyone, but 
but some of the same atrocities happen to everyone. The, the, um, uh, the beatings and the rapes and the sodomizing and the, you know, all of those kinds of things uh, occurred at just, well, they occurred at every boarding school. And then the reservation system. And by the way, many of these things, like the, the residential boarding schools and the reservation system, uh, Isaac McCoy, we can thank my group, the Baptists, for that. I, I'm ordained with the American Baptists. So, um, you know, the reservation system really was a, a theological idea of Isaac McCoy. He called it the Indian Canaan. You know, let's move the Indians out farther so they don't have to be struggling with the, the differences here. And uh, so some of our best helpers have always been people who want to help us, you know. Uh, some of our worst enemies have been the people who want to help us. So. The assimilation laws that occurred. Um, you know, uh, black folks had their Jim Crows and we had our assimilation laws. Um, just a different approach to the same style. Cobell versus Babbitt and then Norton and then whoever else was the Secretary of Interior. Do you know about that? Um, the United States from set aside uh, what's called the uh, Individual Indian Money Accounts, IIM, over about a hundred-year period, and then as Indians would lease out their, um, they call it grass fees or oil or things like that to make a little money off of their land. And of course, there's a guardian ad litem, which is the Bureau of Indian Affairs that's under the Department of Interior. So um, uh, basically, they stole about 175 billion dollars with a B over a hundred-year period. Well, finally. One of those native people who was Eloise Cobell, a blackfoot woman, blackfeet woman, um, who was a banker, said, hey, I think I know what happened here to all this money. And then they sued the United States. And, and uh, uh, it, was, it was a shameful, shameful thing. It went on for over 10 years. Almost every session, the judge would find the United States Department of Interior in contempt of court for destroying documents and shredding documents and all those kinds of, and lying and those kinds of things. And, and finally... Uh, it wasn't settled under uh, Bush, um, and then uh, it came under Obama, and Obama said, let's settle this thing, and, and uh, it was finally settled at, I think it was uh, $4.3 billion, which is still a pretty good discount from $175 billion, but I think they, they felt like they needed to do something with it. So. So, so all of that, we're talking about millions of Native Americans who were killed, some through disease, some through intention, um, over uh, probably the, the greatest um, uh, demographic calamity in the history of the world uh, that happened right here. And my question is always this. What can turn the people who call themselves by Christ's name into people who kill, steal, and destroy others, the earth and all nature with a genocidal passion, especially toward the most disenfranchised and vulnerable in society? That's an important question to ask ourselves. If we don't ask ourselves that, we, we certainly can't be in touch with reality. And so there are a few things that I need to say that are sort of uh, have always been a threat and that still some of them remain a threat. So, so one of them is just pure physicality. So the average 16th century Native American was six inches taller than the Europeans who they first encountered. And, and so... Uh, um, uh, if I could get uh, Ben, would you mind demonstrating with me? And Pugini, would you stand up? And I want you to stand in front of each other and just face each other. Okay. So uh, now look at each other. Okay. So Pugini, meet the Native American. So there's a just the thank you guys. Appreciate it. That's all I wanted you to do. Yeah. It was not a test. Um, and uh, 
so just the pure physicality also uh, was sort of reminiscent of that, you know, giants in the land, right? So uh, secondly, technology. The, the, the Indians knew how to not only uh, live uh, and survive, but to thrive in every what would be known by Europeans as hostile environment there was. So they had a technological advantage. Religion, Native American religion is holistic. It encompasses all of life. It's not compartmentalized. Native beliefs were congruous, not having a secular arena that allows them to act out of character from their religion. Land, the only thing standing between the Europeans uh, who had come over and had no chance in a feudal system to to improve themselves unless they married up, which was not going to be likely. Um, All of a sudden, they could be landowners. Their whole status and all generations to follow could be successful. And I think Mennonites know a little something about that. (coughs) Kindness. The hospitality and simplicity of the Indians is considered a weakness by Europeans. Our vulnerability often still is today. Making us seem childlike. Tolerance. Native Americans hold a high view of tolerance of religious concepts and rarely argue about the creator or matters of one's heart. So it's... um, uh, a much more diverse society, and, and while we were not perfect by any means, and while there were wars, um, they were fought under different circumstances, and they had different outcomes and intentions, um, but there was never a war between uh, people because of religious beliefs in America before 1492. And so I want to just define a term that I often use, American myth, uh, mythical violence, because um, Uh, I think it's important to understand. I say it's participation in the American myth that continues to empower white supremacy by denying or ignoring past and current systems of oppression. So this is a, what do they call that, a sin of omission, I guess you'd say. By denying or ignoring past or current systems of oppression, helping to preserve the inaccurate, untrue, and untold histories of people of color, thereby perpetuating their misery and continuing white supremacy's ultimate goal of measured ethnocide, resulting in the disempowerment of people of color and disharmony on the earth. We are often called the problem. In fact, if you read the literature, for hundreds of years, they will talk about the Indian problem. And uh, I like what uh, uh, Linda Smith said, a uh, Maori woman. Problematizing the indigenous as a Western obsession, concern about the indigenous problem began as an explicitly militaristic or policing concern. Once indigenous peoples had been rounded up and put on reserves, the indigenous problem became a policy discourse which reached out across all aspects of a government's attempt to control the natives. Both friends of the natives and those hostile to indigenous peoples conceptualized the issues of colonization and a European encroachment on indigenous territories in terms of a problem of the natives. The natives were, according to this view, to blame for not accepting their terms of colonization. The belief in the indigenous problem is still present in the Western psyche. So what is the real problem? I'm glad you asked. If we look at a comparison uh, from my perspective, now I'll take responsibility for this, um, from what I have understood as an inside-outer, um, 
uh, being both inside and outside, between the church and tradition, between native folks and white folks, and, and other people of color, as an inside-outer, these are the things that I've discovered, that there are characteristics of the Western worldview um, that are not helpful, and they're certainly not Christian. So, um, and there are characteristics, and, and, and there's, by the way, I'm not throwing the baby out of the bathwater, there's some wonderful things in the Western worldview, but these are the things that I see as problematic. There are some wonderful things in an indigenous worldview. There are also some things that aren't helpful. But these are the things that I think are wonderful. And I tried to do a comparison. And, and you could just see uh, some. And I'm only going to just, uh, like I said, I'm not dumping the whole load. I'm just going to go through a few of these things. And um, uh, they're, they're sort of uh, parallel each other if you look across. Um, so I'll give you a second to do that. But I want to just do what I call the foundational fallacy and then several others and then make some suggestions. Dualism is the foundational fallacy of a Western worldview. To invest in the ethereal or spiritual, metaphysical, abstract realm to a higher degree than the physical creates an in disembodied theologies. It's this secular, or secular sacred thing. Believe God's at work in the church more than God's at work in the world. I think the last time I, we were attending a Quaker church about seven years ago. Now our church is a sweat lodge in a community that come together once a month. But um, uh, the last time I think I went to church, um, I was walking in the front door and somebody tapped me on the shoulder. And I turned around and it was Jesus. And Jesus was standing there, and I said, Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. Let's go inside. And Jesus said, no, you go ahead. I'll meet you when you come out. (laughs) It's what causes us to uh, invest in that ethereal, abstract, universal theologies, all the rest, uh, as opposed to the physical, to our bodies our good bodies, to our good works, and the land even becomes suspect. It creates binary thinking, either right or wrong, legal or illegal, heaven or hell, sin or holiness, success or failure, civilized or primitive, introvert or extrovert, saved or lost, clean or dirty, weeds and plants. This is what I love because we just stop calling anything a weed because half the weeds are good medicine. So they're just a plant that's misplaced. So... Uh, animals, environments, what makes some animals and what makes some environments? It, it's how we classify, and, and the English language leads itself to that. Uh, it makes it difficult for Western thinkers to hold two seemingly incompatible things in tension without having to find resolution. And this is part of this false assumption that we believe everything can be understood and every problem can be solved. But we might be at the place where we can't solve them anymore. Where we can't solve the political problem. Where we can't solve the race problem. Where we can't solve the earth problem. You know, a lot of our elders are telling us. Like, for example, um, the Mayan prophecies. They said in 2013, there's a shift. 
And I have a friend who's a, a Ph.D. professor, and her, um, her area of study is the Mayan calendar and Mayan, Mayan prophecies. And in 2013, people said it was 2012. She says no, and she went into a long explanation as to why it's actually 2013. But she said, we have 10 more years. The Mayans say in 10 years, if we don't solve the problems, if we don't create a peaceful and harmonious, what we would call a shalom-based existence, then the world will spin out of control and we will never be able to regain ourselves again as people with dignity and composure. She says that there will be violence and wars and natural disasters like we've never seen before. Uh, okay. Oh, five more years. I thought you were saying five more minutes. I'm like, oh, man. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thanks. So, uh, but it's not just the Mayans. It's also the Hopis. It's also the Lakota spiritual leaders. It's also the Mohawks. And you can say, well, that's just a bunch of native prophecy and stuff that doesn't matter. But what if it does? What if it matters? Extrinsic compartmentalization. Now, here's one of those kind of like, well, it depends how you use it. Because to, to this reductionism divides the erroneously classified life into many parts with little attention to the whole. So, but I have to say, you know, I appreciate a cardiologist. You know, I'm glad that I have a cardiologist and, and not just a GP who's working on my atrial fibrillation. Right? So specialization isn't necessarily a bad thing. So I have a cardiologist. I have a podiatrist. I have a GP. I have a neurologist, but you know, if they don't talk to one another and realize that I'm a whole body and really a whole person, if they don't deal with me as a whole person, I might be in trouble because you can't treat me as if I'm just a foot. And so this extrinsic, what happens with extrinsic categorization is that we, we create these categories out of nowhere and, and then we act as if that is the whole of reality. But we need to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. We need to bring everything back and realize that we are whole people. Partial reality becomes a false reality when we forget the whole. And this is how we can deal with things like and deny things like climate change. Another one of those is that salvation is for our souls. It's about us. It's not about the whole earth that Jesus created. You heard that scripture at the beginning, right? He made everything that was created, and without him, nothing was created that was created. It says that at least five times in scripture. Colossians 1, John 1, I think it's uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 7. Um, I might be wrong on that. Um, Hebrews 1, 1. Jesus has the efficacy of creation. When we talk, and I'm a Trinitarian, so I understand that it's not just Jesus, right? But Jesus, it says, that, that is how the New Testament writers chose to understand who he was. Another one, hierarchy. Everything is ranked greater or lesser. Quality is, or equality is wrong, and at least not a preferred system, even if you call it democratic. The results of historical Western structured systems have created dehumanization because we are... In a Western worldview, everything is hierarchical. So we have to find out, well, what class people should be in, what race, what ethnicity, where, where, gender, where does gender go? Uh, 
religion, nationality, all of those are sort of seen through a hierarchical worldview. And it's, they're always anthropocentrism. So humans are always above nature, right? So I, I get this, and this is a long explanation that I won't do, but I just would argue that it comes from Ignatius of Antioch, his trying to contextualize to the Roman uh, uh, world in, uh, in 100 AD-ish. And, uh, and basically when that hierarchical view then of Christianity, because it wasn't the view of Jesus, um, when that meets empire under Constantine, uh, you couldn't stop it. And so we, we still can't stop it today. Utopianism, the shared myth of usually religious movements, um, living in another world or living uh, uh, for the future or living for a past that you want to bring back negates our humanity, our human frailty, and seeks perfection. The end, then, almost always, historically, justifies the me. Individualism, the loss of the corporate nature of humanity, and just the loss of the corporate nature of Scripture. You know, our understanding of Scripture as an individual is a byproduct of the talk to the community. And yet we understand it primarily is about us and not others in our community. Competitiveness over cooperation. Apparently, cooperation is a bad thing. Some, you know, in, in our society, um, majority rule over consensus. I don't know who ever thought of that. Oh, my goodness, forty-nine percent of the people walk away angry sometimes, right? And you know, it, it, that sort of likens back to that. Well, it's hierarchical. Might makes right, and all the rest. Um, you know. When, uh, when, when we pastored, uh, our church came to the point where we all sat around and talked. And we came to consensus. Because that was our, our ending way. Oh, wait, I was going to take this one out. Wait a minute. I'm sorry. <laughs> Not. <laughs> How'd this get in the stacks? So I, I really believe this is a true concern. White, light-skinned, Western European-descended people have the inherent right to control all governance, knowledge, wealth, and power in any given system. That is how I define white supremacy. A symptom of otherisms. The Greeks had their barbarians. The Romans had their savages. The English had their heathen. And Americans have Native Americans, African Americans, homosexuals, immigrants, Muslims, you name it. There's a lot of others under our belt here. It creates intolerance for difference, and laws and other systems are formed to maintain that control. Modern expressions of white normalcy and white privilege derived from ancient Greece, Rome, Anglo-Saxon, Germania, uh, in the United States, understanding their privilege. And I want to recommend four books for you if you want to do a study on this. These are four of the books that have impacted me the most, and they're... Um, uh, not the highest academic level, so it won't bore you to sleep, um, but, but they are you know, pretty substantial in terms of their research. So the first one um, is by an uh, African-American woman, Nell Irvin Painter at Princeton, The History of White People. Sound like a good book. Um, the second one by uh, Robert Williams, a Native American uh, scholar, Savage Anxieties, the Invention of Western Civilization. Another one that I'm, I'm still in the middle of, but it appears to be a really good book on the Anglo-Saxon myth, Stand Your Ground, uh, Black Bodies and the Justice of God by Kelly Brown Douglas. And then finally, Utopian Legacies, The History of Conquest and Oppression in the Western World by John Mohawk. Um, put those on your reading list. 
Because of the many streams of otherism, which invites assumed hubris, like privilege, normalcy, and supremacy, Christians, since the fundamentalist modernist divide, have developed a systemic and foundational misunderstanding of Jesus and Jesus' shalom kingdom. I think we've misunderstand our duty to the marginalized. I think we have under, misunderstood what it means to convert. And I think we have misunderstood the very nature of God. And here's how it happens uh, with uh, re- replacement theology and a replacement worldview. Replacing indigenous theologies with Western theologies as highlighted by the phrase, kill the Indian, save the man, during the boarding school era. Decolonizing and re-indigenizing the story and stories of Jesus through other lenses, like indigenous worldviews, for example, uh, offers an alternative theological perspective that may be missing among the current scholarship. Gospel accounts as seen through the lens of an indigenous worldview help us to understand why it's critical to view Christ, who created the world and everything in it, in a local, praxis-oriented construct of place. The historic Jesus looks different through a shalom-based, local, indigenous, place-based theological lens. The indigenous focus on Jesus' relationship to creation, his incarnation, his life, his crucifixion, and his resurrection is different than the modern Christian views that consistently produce a redemption-based replacement theology and replacement missiology that has destroyed and continues to destroy many indigenous cultures. A more indigenous viewpoint has direct implications for how we live our lives, how we understand our salvation healing, and how we go about doing mission. I like uh, an Australian wrote a book called Following Jesus in Invaded Space, and he said this, Without an honest beginning among Western theologians, unrighteous invasion will continue to be fitted in the European worldview and theology as normal. And racism will continue to include white privilege and white normalcy. The way forward is both structural and relational, requiring theological thought concerning the following points, and I'm going <clears> to <throat> list a few for you, but first I want to uh, say that there is no single history, there is no single theology, only histories and theologies and worldviews. And quoting D.L. Hughley, I kind of mentioned this the other day, uh, these scriptures, but, but D.L. Hughley is my favorite philosopher comedian, and he said the other day, uh, on a news show, he said, white people can't judge what is racist any more than the Pope can judge what is pedophilia. Ouch. And, and I offer the same scriptures that I mentioned the other day, that, that there seems to be some kind of a, a, a pattern in scripture, at least one pattern you can find, where it is the oppressed who have the right to say what restitution involves. It's not the oppressor. So very quickly, because I know my time is over, uh, the Western worldview is deeply flawed, even anti-Christ, and express, as expressed through the white U.S. entitlement. And um, I think that's the first thing where we start, is to deconstruct our own worldview, if we are Western thinkers. I know I certainly work on that myself. Secondly, understand Jesus as the cosmic creator, which then allows us to inhabit local focus, place, and time. Thirdly, God's concern is about restoring harmony and shalom to all creation, not just to human beings. Shalom's a very deep and very wide lens. God's not concerned about restoring human life, but restoring all life and life systems. 
to, uh, that includes ecologies, econ economics, justice, etc., to an ongoing shalom reality. Shalom is demonstrated by both personal and systemic concern for the most marginalized and disenfranchised in society. God's concern is also about restoring the common good structurally, actively, and passively. I think you understand that, what the kingdom is about. Jesus was not talking about a new kingdom. He was talking about a shalom kingdom that was both old and new. And our conversion to great mystery is continuous, especially through the cultural other. So God always expects two conversions in every encounter, ours and theirs. If we believe that God is at work everywhere in the world, then that's what we need to be looking for. Religion is best demonstrated by vulnerability, and creator is the most vulnerable being who exists. And so as a human being, like in the song that I started with this morning, um, have pity on me, I'm just a human being. It's a good thing to be a human being, but it's not a good thing to try and be something different, to try and be God-like. He's made us human. God has made us human. And as human beings... I think we are at our most spiritual time when we are most vulnerable. And human beings are not superior to nor subordinate to creation, as in many religions and philosophies. Um, uh, we'll talk about uh, the, the anthropocentric idea. The best place you end up, whether it's reincarnation or it's revolution or, or Christianity or whatever it is, is at the pinnacle of creation. And our belief is we are just part of creation. And, and I like the, even the creation narratives that, uh, that we have are, uh, that are absent of human beings remind us that creation can exist without us. So genocide and ecocide left unreconciled insured, uh, ensures that no shalom in the land is possible. Well, what, is, what does that have to do with shalom? What is... And the thing I've been saying is that we are connected to the land. And you can't kill the land without killing us. And you can't kill us without killing the land. And you can't heal the land without healing us. And you can't heal us without healing the land. And how does that affect our own spirituality? So I just want to, uh, um, Ben, this is like pseudoscience, so um, th th please don't uh, judge me too harshly here. <laughs> but my understanding, you know, of, of how energy flows, uh, you know, phytoplankton is the, the greatest source, uh, and the primary consumers are zooplankton. Uh, secondary consumers are things like fish, and we have been tertiary consumers. And the food chain and the, hum the webs of, of human energy consumption, Mother Earth produces everything we need. And my argument would be that humans have moved from tertiary consumers uh, of energy to becoming primary consumers beyond the Earth's natural cycles and recharge rates, creating imbalance and inharmony. And the top of the food chain now is the Earth herself. For millennia, the whole of creation has been producing enough energy to allow a limited consumption. Humanity in just a few generations has accelerated consumption exponentially. In order to restore harmony, Mother Earth is now trying to rebalance the overuse through random acts of nature. She's reclaiming territory, spitting out the inhabitants in order to 
restore harmony. And it's not just physical. Please don't understand. I'm also saying what we're doing to each other spiritually. And, and uh, we had some of these in uh, some of the workshops. And so uh, everyone pretty well knows that things are on the upswing in terms of natural disasters and drought and, you know, climate uh, extremes and earthquakes and all those kinds of things. And, and it, it's never just a straight trajectory, but, but there is a sort of average line that goes up. Um, I've been watching this personally, these things, since 1999 and uh, am amazed that we haven't done more to deal with it. Um, so uh, I'm going to go ahead and skip this and tell you a story as I begin to end. Um, uh, we have a story that I want to share that, that I hopefully will bring this all together. And, uh, and that story is that a long time ago, our Cherokee people began to um, take the animals and that we would, we would kill the animal and just take the best part and just leave the rest there and not be thankful. And so, so the animals got together, and I'm going to shorten this story because I do realize I'm over time. Um, and the animals got together, and they said, well, what are we going to do? We've got to fight back somehow. And they said, well, you know, was, the bears came up, and the bears said, you know, well, let us, let us solve this. Put us in charge, and we'll figure it out. And now you have to understand a little bit of inside um, knowledge here is for Cherokee people, the bears are the closest relatives to human beings. So when we're really talking about humans. So the bears thought and they, they said, well, how are they killing us? They're killing us with bows and arrows. So, so they went out and they made bows and they made arrows and they started shooting and the arrows were going everywhere because they had the big claws. And so they, they said, well, we're going to have to cut our claws off. And well, we can't do that because we make a living with our claws. So what are we going to do? And and so they said, you know, the, the rest of the animals said, okay, bears, you've had your chance. Now let us figure this out. And so they put the inchworm in charge. And so the inchworm led the, and, and they, he came up with an idea that everybody liked and agreed on. And that idea was, let's put disease on the human beings. And, and let's think of them like influenza and smallpox and chickenpox and all those kinds of things. And, and the humans began to die. And they, they died at a fast rate. And and, uh, and, and this is our, uh, we're from a matrix society, so I have to tell it this way. So at first it was the children and the old people who died. And then it was the men. And then finally the strong women began to die. And, the, and, and they said, there's not going to be any of us left. What are we going to do? We've got to go to the animals and we've got to beg them. Stop, stop. And so they went to the animals, but the animals said, no, it's too late. We won't have any pity on you. And all this time the plants were watching. And then the plants said, you know, we've got to help these people. I feel sorry for them. They look like they could learn something now. And so they began to send plant remedies to the dreams of people and tell them how to use the plants and and how to act. And so finally they all came together, the council of the plants, because the people started getting well again, and the council of the animals and the council of the humans and And so what they decided was, from now on, every time I pick a plant, I put down tobacco. Every time I take an animal's life, I use all of the animal, and I put down tobacco, and I thank the earth, and I thank that animal, and I thank the creator. And so, uh, and that's how things came back to be restored in harmony again. And so it's going to take all of us. I see much the same thing in the Genesis story. In the Genesis story, creation is harmonious and balanced. Original sin, in my understanding of the story, is the misuse of land as God intended. Disharmony occurs, or ecocide, 
when that occurs, it leads to broken relationships, to blame, to marginalization, to subjugation, and ethnocide. Harmony is restored within the community of creation. So what do we need? We don't need more information. Everybody has enough to do something. We don't need endless meetings and committees. We don't need doubters who say it can't be done. We don't need dualists who say, well, that's not our problem. That's, you know, that's, this is, we deal with the spiritual. We don't need do-gooders who are trying to help Indian people. We need people who are going to empower Indian people. Um, we, we don't need the oppression Olympics to say, well, you know who had it worse than your people. We need relationship. We need restitution. We need reparations. We need massive education among white people. You, if you're white, should be educating your own people. We need to problematize the real problems, which is the Western worldview and white supremacy. And we need partnership. And here's just two quick things. I'm going to flash up on the screen and we're done. Do you know about reparations for black and indigenous farmers? There is a, a reparations map um, that deals with uh, this. The, the, this is their understanding. The food system was built on stolen land and stolen, stolen labor of black, indigenous, Latinx, uh, Asian, and people of color. We claim our sovereignty um, by um, uh, taking uh, our place back on the land. And uh, this is a place where if you want to provide uh, reparations or restitution, you can. Um, and I have to uh, sell a disclosure here. Elahe Farm is on the map, just so you know. If you want to hear some of the stories, you can go there. They have a blog. Um, they just, uh, a couple months ago, they feature one every now and then. And Why Hunger Magazine featured us and what's occurred with us. And, and uh, so a few of you know we lost our farm due to um, pressure from white supremacists, violent pressure from white supremacists, and lost everything. And, and so uh, someone told me about it once, and I said, well, yeah, we'll... We'll put our dot on the map. We'll see what happens. But so far, nothing's happened. Do you know about the DVD Two Rivers? Which is a whole story of how a community like Elkhart comes together and understands itself in light of the atrocities that occurred and what to do about it. It's a wonderful, wonderful teaching tool. Um, And uh, uh, that's available out there. Um, I'm not going to read my poem, The Haunting, because I've taken way too much time, and I apologize to the speakers on the next set, but I want to finally read with this last thing. Um, I hear what the ground says. The water says the same thing. Feed the Indians well. The grass says the same thing. The ground says, the Great Spirit placed me here to produce all that grows in me, on me, trees and fruit. The same way the ground says, it was for me that humans were made. Take good care of it and do each other no harm. Thank you.